Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome to the Beer Massive Podcast. Been a minute, had a baby, six months old, but we decided to trek out into the beautiful yet immensely humid Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and talk to a man who knows a little bit about beer and that man would be Jeff Outworth. What's going on, brother? Well, I've been in Bethlehem 10 minutes and I've already been really impressed, so uh, it's cool to be here. I haven't spend much time at Pennsylvania. What's, what's, your, uh, what's your history? With- hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome to the Beer Massive Podcast. Been a minute, had a baby, six months old, but we decided to trek out into the beautiful yet immensely humid Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and talk to a man who knows a little bit about beer, and that man would be Jeff Outworth. What's going on, brother? Well, I've been in Bethlehem 10 minutes, and I've already been really impressed, so uh, it's cool to be here. I haven't spent much time in Pennsylvania. What's, what's, your, uh, what's your history with Pennsylvania, or even in northeastern United States in general? Uh, well, uh, my history with Pennsylvania is I've been in, in, in Philly for about one day, and then 10 minutes ago, I came to Bethlehem. So that's 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 my history with this region. Uh, that but, could be a good or bad thing, but okay, yeah. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been to New York a few times, and my wife is from New England, so I actually go to New England often every year. Okay. So I, I know New England quite well, but um, but points south, I start to get really spotty. So uh, yeah, this is this is uh, it's cool to to be in an old industrial town. Yeah. We don't have that so much out in the west. Um, and it's it's uh, the history. You just really feel the history when you drive into this town. Now, like, uh, I mean, we're obviously going to be talking about, a lot about your second edition of the book, your beer Bible that came out. And it's not a question I really had prepped or anything like that, but it just makes me think, like, do you see a distinct pattern when you travel and visit these places, the, the, the culture in the town, the kind of beers they make, you know what I mean? Whether it be like here, you know, you go into Bethlehem, do you expect some certain kind of beer once you see the actual city itself, or is it more just who knows? It's less to do with the type of beer that's served than the beer, the way the beer is drunk. So when I walked into this pub here at Bond Place uh, and and got the kind of the vibe, the feng shui of the the pub, it, it matched kind of what I expected. You know, I expected uh, a comfortable gathering hole where people, you know, I'm I'm just guessing. So I don't I don't want to I don't want to talk too much out of school. But I'm guessing this is a place that's been a good pub town for a lot a lot of years. <laughs> you know, like hardworking people like to drink beer, mm-hmm. and those make for good pubs, right? So yeah. you come to a place like Bethlehem, even even long after the the industry has left, you kind of expect that culture to still exist, that residue. In many places in America, you know, um, it's you go, you have to go to a strip mall. For, to find a, a place to drink. There's not dive bars. There's not the culture of pub drinking. Yeah. Um, and those are not my towns. So yeah. I instantly, when I walked into Bond Place, I instantly felt like this is this is <laughs> home. This is this is a, this is my kind of place. Well, you see a three percent Cascale on on, on draft too. That kind of helps things too. Yeah. You know? Well, <laughs> people who read me know that I'm a big fan of Cask. And I got to say, this thing, uh, what's it called, Mui? Yeah. It's awesome. It's, it's really um, good. I mean, this is. Yeah. It's it's very hard to make a Cascale that that uh, that would credibly be served in the UK, and this is one. It's really good, and that's and that's one great thing about Bond. Not to make it a Bond podcast, but it's like in. But it kind of goes back to your book because I think there's a cool kind of like. Um, uh, I mean, you'll be able to explain it better. Is is well, let's just jump into it now. Is the difference between your first edition and second edition, and what you needed to add and remove, not just as far as styles go, but as far as creating the book and let's just jump to the beginning so when you made the original beer bible um you were donezo in like 2013 but you didn't even hit the shelves until 2015 so you had to wait two years if you had to wait two years today the book would be completely irrelevant but there's so I, I much hope not yeah please, no no please, no. please no. keep buying it after no. two years <laughs> no, no 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 but you know what i mean not irrelevant but a bit dated um this one i'm sure it went from you writing it to publishing quite a bit quicker what was it like having to deal with that kind of difference where it took you so long to see it hit the shelves, but this time you had to add a lot and have it come out quicker? Is it, is it got to be a weird experience? Yeah, it is in one way. And in another way, uh, so 
just to back up a little bit, to go back before the first one was published, um, when I was hired to write the first edition, I thought I knew a lot about beer. I thought I was qualified to write the book. Mm-hmm. And then I started to write it, and I realized I was not qualified to write the book. Somebody else probably should have been hired. I was, I didn't know enough about beer to write it. So I had to do a lot, a lot of remedial work. I did, you know, I'd never been to Europe before, never tra- you know, never drunk Cascale like the one I'm drinking right now in a pub in England. Um, never been to Germany, so I, I had a lot of work to do. And w- you know what I what I wanted to do when I made the book, when I wrote the book, was to have something that was a little bit more timeless. Um, that captured, you know, like drinking in England hasn't changed, the styles have changed, but fundamentally the, the experience of drinking a pint of Cascale in, in, in London hasn't changed in, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. So I, I, I was trying to capture that quality. Uh, and I, you know, I think I did, I think I did pretty well on all of that, but then the, you know, the big thing that really happened uh ipa became the best-selling craft style in america in 2011 and and then it just went on a rocket ship after that and so that that was really the big change and and not only in america because now everybody makes ipa if you go to any place uh where there's there's craft breweries new new breweries that are being opened uh, and i'm talking like beijing or mexico city or bangalore wherever you are you're going to find American style IPAs, and they're going to mm-hmm. be—they're not going to be made like they were in 2013 when I wrote the first edition of the book. <laughs> so that definitely—that was something I needed to deal with. Um, so that—that—that that, that, you're right. That it was—it was slightly bad luck that the one style that people cared most deeply about was the one that was under the most transformation when I started the first one. But you even—you said uh, just before that you know you felt like you were underqualified to write the book once you actually got into it. That's kind of ends up being a blessing sometimes because instead of telling your version of what beer is, you're kind of just telling what you see and what you learn because you don't have a preconceived notion about what things are. Do you think that makes for when you call a beer a, a book the beer bible? That's kind of a big swing. You know what I mean? It's not like you're saying, saying Jeff Alworth's book on beer, you're, the beer bible. So you, what you're trying to do, I would assume, is be as I don't want to say clinical because beer is an art and stuff like that, but it just being very very informational. And I kind of think having maybe not knowing everything is a good thing in that aspect. I, yeah, you're you're exactly right. And and once I realized that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew, I, I did my best to just start from scratch. It's like <laughs> I bit off more than I can chew. So the best thing I can do is, is go back to basics. And and you're exactly right. I think I think it was good uh, to spend a lot of time reading experts and listening to experts and listening to brewers. And um, you know it was like a a crash course in in beer and and sort of like a PhD in beer and and uh, by the time it was published I was I felt good about it I thought uh, I only had two years to write it and I felt like uh, it was certainly the most I could do in those two years it was the the biggest job I've ever done it was almost caused a divorce um, it was it was a big it was a big pro- project and uh, and at the end I felt I felt like I understood beer you know probably at order of magnitude more than when I started the project. And when you, you know, back to when you got into it and you're like, ah, oh, maybe not qualified enough to write the book, but you come out of it with this just new kind of just large catalog of information and, and, and knowing a billion different things. See, you got to worry about that light struckness. Yeah. He's doing the right to, thing. I'm starting to get um, a little, a little, a little skunk. <laughs> that trying out. to cook it? Um, <laughs> uh, did it change you as far as how you drank beer? Because obviously... You, you you thought you knew beer. You go in, maybe I don't know as much. Well, you go through the, the, the ringer of, uh, of learning so much about it. But beer, it has to change you as a drinker. Yeah, it totally did. Uh, I think t- two things that I noticed in my own experience was uh, I was, if you know, more or less a beer geek in that I was, I was deeply into the best beer, the most obscure beer, the biggest beer, like all that stuff. Just like, you know beer geeks often do when you when you when you start you start at Budweiser then mm-hmm. you go deep and you and you go into this this place um and there were a bunch of styles that I had ignored uh and traveling around the world going to you know play, uh, breweries where talk where I talked to a brewer who'd been there for 40 years making a particular beer style that I didn't think I admired uh and touring that brewery which might have been around for 200 years all of a sudden 
I, I gained massive new appreciation for a beer style I didn't think I appreciated. So that changed me. I, I started to really appreciate, particularly I have to say the German tradition, uh, German lagers. I could have taken, take, you know, taken or left before I was writing the beer Bible, and afterwards they became among my favorite styles, and, and I, I really appreciate the craft and, and history that goes into them. So that was one piece. And the second piece is, uh, I, you know, I came to see that beer is culture. Uh, it's less to do about what's in the pint than what's behind the pint. So you, you, I had the great fortune, because I was forced by this book to go travel through Europe, to go from one country to the next. And, you know, you see how people drink beer differently. Mm-hmm. You see uh, the way beer functions in the drinking process. So the difference between drinking eight cask ales when you go to a pub in Britain versus drinking two really strong beers at a cafe in Belgium. Um, you know, you see that. And then y- y- you just also, talking to the brewers, um, they have such incredibly strong opinions that are formed by the context in which they were taught how to brew and which they were taught how to drink. So you realize it's it's inextri- It's not really about flavor. It's not like ice cream and you're yeah. just going to come up with a new flavor. It's about all of this we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg and the, the iceberg itself is the interesting thing and it's it's uh, it's this this ball of history and culture <laughs> and technique and process and um that was that was super cool and then I, I really related to beer entirely different afterwards and now to take like a ridiculously large jump ahead how do you accomplish that behind the pint during a pandemic you know, you're going to write a new oh, book, and then you, you want to get that story. You want to be face-to-face with that brewer. You know, you go into the second edition, and, and you want to do that. But you're even if you want to do that, you're kind of hamstrung to a certain extent. I mean, fortunately, I finished I, I finished all my travel right before the pandemic hit. So that was really oh, okay. good. I, I went on a big tour of Europe, and uh, I got back maybe two months before the the, the pandemic hit, which you're right. If I I, I don't th- I don't think I could have written the book. Um, I would have had to, we would have delayed it and at least a year, uh, maybe more than that, uh, before, yeah. <laughs> before I could write it because going, it was, you know, another thing that was remarkable is we think of European beer as not being very changeable, but that's not true at all. Um, the changes that I saw, particularly in, in Britain and Belgium were remarkable over the, you know, five, six years since I'd been there before, um, so it's incredibly important that I, I traveled to those places, and it, yeah, you you know, I would have, it wouldn't have been possible. I, I could have, I may have written the book, but it wouldn't have been a very good book. Well, let's let's flip that on its side. Then it, is it? I'm not trying to say the pandemic's a good thing, but you do all that, and then you come back, and you have no choice but to sit down and write a book, right? So it, does it end up being a good thing, or is that end up being like? both good and bad to where you're kind of just it's as a writer i'm not a writer so i don't know if you're stuck and all you have is one thing to work on is that a way you can work well to the extent that uh my filter of beer as culture was in place it became even more in place because all i was left with was cans of beers that we were buying at uh, breweries you know Mm -hmm. and uh um you know i have a blog i do social media and what i could see was we were all still drinking beer but you extract the social piece out of mm-hmm. it and all the fun is drained away. You know, the yep. reason we like to drink beer is not just because it tastes good and it's mildly alcoholic. It's because we're sitting there with our friends mm-hmm. and we're talking about beer and we're having an experience when we're drinking the beer, whether it's at a pub or at a re- wedding or at a tailgate, you know, whatever it is like, that's why we care about beer. And, yes. and I think um, there was a brewer this spring, so spring 2021, um, as we were thought coming out of this, <laughs> yeah. said, you know, uh, we're getting through this and it's fine and my business is going to survive and that's great. But um, I'm just, beer is supposed to be fun. And the whole reason I got into this, I don't mind the 16 hour days. Um, you know, I don't mind the hard work. I don't mind the, the stress of, of the business, you know, potentially dying or succeeding. As long as I get the thing that I got into it for, which is I want to hang out with my friends and drink beer. I want to make new friends and drink beer. It's a social beverage. You take that away and all of it just feels terrible. It's, you know, it's just, then it just becomes 60 yeah, hours. The linchpin. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, um, 
you know, as I was transcribing my interviews from Europe and, and thinking about that as I was writing the book, I think it was actually a little bit more poignant and a little bit more, it came into sharper focus, the idea that, you know, beer is, is really about the social aspect. At the end of the day, there's this communication, all these styles, uh, they, come, they come through a, a variety of different uh, influences, but one of the most important is the communication between the drinker and the brewer. You know, this, this kind of harmonic that comes so that, you know, they drink Hellas in Munich and they drink IPA in Portland, Oregon, where I come from. Um, that, that, that's a weird witchy process, and it's a social process. It's entirely social. And you take that out of it, and it's like, I think we all lost our, our moorings. We, uh, we didn't really know where we were. And because I was working on the book, it, you know, I had, a, I had a strong sense we would get back there eventually. It's a 12,000-year-old uh, beverage, so I knew beer would come back, and I was thinking of the social aspect a lot. Is this uh, is this kind of first your your first like sojourn out and about to really uh, post pandemic as far as going out and about and kind of you know getting out and amongst the people as related to like when you did the research for the book? Yeah, beer wise, it is. Uh, my uh, mother uh, is li- was living in Arizona, and she was uh, went through a health crisis after COVID, and I had to move her up to Portland. So I was going back and forth to Arizona, but not for beer drinking. Yeah. It was just like, like getting on a plane. So the first time I got on a plane was to go to Arizona. But yeah, no, um, they do have a, one brew pub in Yuma, Arizona, where she's from. And I happened to be, it was classic scene. Uh, I, I went to the brew pub and I was drinking beers and there's this guy who's mopping up the floor and um, he's kind of chatty. So I talked to him. It turns out he owns owns the brewery and he's the brewer it's like oh yeah you're cleaning up that's <laughs> brewing is glamorous of course you are of course you're of course you're the brewer and we had a great time and he was making some really nice beers so i had this little flash a little yeah memory. just like it was, it was oh like, <laughs> like clicking in your brain like yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. oh yeah i remember this this is awesome i want to do more of this yeah so uh, this, it's true this is this is fun it's it's great to come out and uh yeah, go to breweries. Breweries, see dogs, see John Halls. It's, it's just one of the best things in the history of yeah, mankind. Unfortunately, we don't see so many John Halls uh, yeah, in Oregon. It happens. He, he used to travel a lot, yeah, not so much yeah. anymore. Um, so we'll rewind back to the end of end of uh, edition one. Um, you you produ- uh, published a book. And uh, how did, uh, what was it like to publish a, a book that you originally kind of felt maybe a little underqualified for? Like putting it out in the world, putting yourself out there in the world. It had to be pretty hectic. Well, I was super worried about all of that. Uh, and even before it was published, I decided the best way for me to uh, deal with my anxiety is to give chapters to people uh, who are experts. So each, each chapter has, you know, a history section when we're talking about beer history section uh brewing section um and you know different so there's different experts so i i I got uh experts in history to look at the chapters that you know the piece of the chapter dealt with history i got brewers to look at the brewing stuff because one thing that i I had i was developing a neurosis that i was going to really make a fool of myself and i thought let's I would much rather have them privately tell me I'm an idiot and let me fix it of than, course. than have this thing get published <laughs> and, you know, then, then have that go. So that, that actually was a strong way to build confidence heading into the, uh, the publication. And, you know, it's 650 pages long. There's, there's mistakes in it. Yeah. Um, and uh, then they'll grow over time. They'll be more obvious over time. I, I get that. It's, it is, you know, if you're going to write stuff down, you're going to get stuff wrong. And, um, I know that, but you 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 don't want you don't want it to land with a thud, as everyone says. This is just a disaster of misinformation. Um, I can survive. I can survive being corrected over time, but um, yeah, I, I really you're right. I didn't want that to happen. And what was the what was the reception like for you from the people that I don't want to make it sound weird, but the people that you gave a shit about? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I did. What was that like? It was it was positive and it was really gratifying. Um, yeah. It, it was uh, it was good to have, you know, I, I feel like I I write for brewers and uh, they're the people that I'm most interested in, in the process. I think they're the people who think most deep, most deeply about the product. I I, you know, I love people who start breweries and spend their money and their sweat. I have an enormous amount of respect for owners, but at the end of the day, when I walk into a brewery, I always just go talk to the brewer, and uh, so I was. I was interested to see what they thought, and uh, so getting feedback uh, from them that 
they like the book and they found it's always wonderful when when somebody says oh yeah i didn't know that thing about x you know history or i I didn't know that the the british did this process or whatever it was um whenever a brewer tells me that i feel like yeah all right good (laughs) this is a good day that like So you get that um, feedback. You get that uh, positive feedback from the brewers. The people, like I said, give a shit about kind of what y- that you're doing something that is not just well done, but also, also positively presented. You move from there, and then it's Beervana blog. It's Beervana podcast. How does going through the rigmarole of writing that book, researching, writing the first book, and then immersing yourself in both the blog and the beer podcast? How did that change your approach leading into edition two? Well, it's an interesting question, which I'd never considered before. Um, yeah, you know, it, it all just kind of accrues. And I guess um, coming into edition two, I didn't have the same anxiety and neurosis that I, did, I didn't know anything about beer. So that, <laughs> that was good. Uh, there were a couple of things. But it has to be like a sec- uh, double-edged sword people might assume you know everything about beer now so now it's an expectation of you to deliver yeah i mean beer is cool well so this is this is this part of beer is a double-edged sword uh people like beer and they know what they like and they don't give a shit if you think you know more about them and so you know it, it, it beer keeps you humble and so i you know it was it was uh Nobody has ever really looked at me as an expert. Uh, the, the most that's happened is brewers will, you know, email and say, so, you know, when you were at the Czech Republic, when they were making a, a, a tamave, what was the, did they, did they use caramel malt? What was the dark malt that they use? It was Munich malt. What, you know, what was their mash schedule? Like that stuff. That's so they're like trying the, to steal secrets is what they're trying to do is what you're saying. And, I, and I'm an open book. I'm happy to do all that. Yeah. So that's, that's like the most kind of. I guess the the most I get back from it, um, beer fans are uh, pretty confident. You know, it's, it's like whiskey fans and wine fans are always looking to writers to like say, you know, this you should look for this flavor note. This is what it should taste like. Beer fans don't care about that. They don't look to me for you know. It's like this is an awesome beer, and if you don't like it, you're an asshole. <laughs> so, and that's great. Well, let's talk about that. How was not just the the, the beer drinker, but the the brewer. Now ownership is a big thing compared to back then. It, it was almost exclusively if you were the brewer and the owner, because there was no kind of like, oh, we're going to make a billion dollars off of this. Had to be much of a different experience, I would imagine. More specifically in England, which hazies and hoppy stuff has gone crazy over there. What was the difference between then and now, dealing with the people who make it and own it and do it? Yeah, I mean England especially was super cool to see because. Um the beer had really changed. So Cascale, which is, you know, I'm drinking a Cascale here. It's, I, I consider it the most crafted beer style on the planet. Um, the, because not only do you have to do this, you know, make it properly in the brew house, uh, then it has to go to the pub and be handled properly and dispensed properly. It's like a really fussy process, right? So it's a, it's a very cool beer style. And um, part of the problem with, with, cask beer is that we're mostly talking about cask bitter and it's mostly been frozen in amber for 30 years which was the case when i was there uh to do the first edition research so when i went back in 2019 uh late 2019 i discovered that breweries now including like old venerable breweries like fuller's and uh you know uh, lee's i was i went to manchester uh they're making but also more modern breweries who do cask beer style, they're making 4%, 3.8% bitters using American hopping techniques to produce incredibly juicy flavors in their cask ales that Americans would be unable to ever produce because of the way they think about base malts, the way they think about yeast, the way they think about water chemistry, all these things. Uh, and, and, and of course, the cask, cask, this dispense system itself is also something that totally mystifies Americans. So I was getting these beers. So, you know, America has craft beer that was founded on British brewing. Pub beers were like that. We got them from England. Yep. We completely perverted them. 
turned them into American brewing. And now the English are recreating them in their own fashion. So it's like ping, ping pong back <laughs> and forth across the Atlantic. And now the English are making these insanely good cascales that are really juicy and made with, you know, modern hops. Um, it's, it's just, it was, it totally blew my mind. And I was there. Unfortunately, the English are really, they, they're kind of embarrassed by their own national tradition. And I was going like, to ask this. Yeah. For God's sakes, guys, you are making some of the best beer in the world. You should be like totally bragging about this. Yeah. Awesome. That's what I was curious. I was going to ask you about that. It, it, it's such a proud tradition for those beers and to take such new school technique and, and more, especially take it from American hops or American technique and to put it in it just make great you're, it's amazing why are you, you even like blinking an eye at oh it's not perfect traditional it has to be fantastic and Hopefully over here they start doing that stuff. But like you said, yeah, I've been do trying it. to tell they people, you guys got to try to make this juicy cask they're making over <laughs> in Britain because it's awesome and you guys would love it. And there's a few brewers like I think Bond Place is one of them who 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 get the base style. It's like you can do abstract art if you know how to do art. <laughs> you know, it's a uh, you can you can you can mess with the English language if you understand grammar that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, a brewer that can make a beer like the one that I'm drinking could easily apply American techniques to this and figure out how to make it taste in harmony and balance because the big problem with Americans is, you know, we always, our, our attitude is more. Yeah. So you can't use more on certain beer styles, and this is one of them, you know, a cask, a Cascale that's 4%. It's, so. I will say this as, as one of the world's semi-biggest curmudgeons, that would be, you know, John's partner in crime is the biggest, but... Um, <laughs> I'll say it was the second biggest conversion. Not, not, not yet. Anyway, um, they seem to be coming around. It seems like it seems like a lot of like traditional styles are not just being like. It doesn't seem like a fad. It seems like a lot of you know lager and and and, and, and lower EBV sessionable ale is starting to become more of a thing in yeah, the United States. And brewers love those kinds of beers. Um, you know, if you ask a brewer. You go to a, if you go to a brew pub and you see that they have 17 double IPAs on tap, uh, and then you and they have one uh, you know 4.2% saison and a pilsner, and you ask them which one do you drink? Oh, I drink oh, yeah. the pilsner. Yeah, <laughs> um, because those are the kind of beers they like to brew. Uh, it's a commercial enterprise, so you got to sell people what they want to drink, and and um, there's nothing wrong with it. A good double IPA. It's a very American style, and you know, it's as a, it's as culturally relevant here as Hellas is in Munich, so it's you know it's fine, but um, I think that there's a there's the question then of technique, and I think most Americans don't get Cascale in particular. They they really get lagers a lot better than they get Cascale. So I find a lot more credible examples of German and Czech style lagers than I do uh, credible examples of what we would consider a good uh, English Cascale. So then, if you ask them to take to to, incl- to introduce an American element into a Cascale, it's you're 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 getting into big trouble because most most Americans are going to be like, I understand America and I will just muscle this thing around. <laughs> you really have to be like in tune with the Cascale, yeah, in order to get that that juiciness without destroying what makes a Cascale so special. Maybe that's maybe that's it's a good thing the logger came. They have to crawl before they walk. They got not that loggers are easy and it's crawling, but you know what I mean. Get a little bit more kind of keen on what they're what they're trying to execute and executing it rather than just shoving stuff into a Cascale. Yeah, and I have a lot of respect for logger uh, in a, in the United States. I'm, I just continue to encounter great loggers in the United States. So American brewers can do subtlety, but it's a uh, it's you know it's a matter of understanding ingredient and process and and I think uh, English Cascale has been passe for so long uh, you know most brewers are, are going to be under forty years old so they're not going to have been raised in that era in which Cascale was revered uh, and sometimes they're you know really young and maybe never even had a, a crappy English style beer so yeah it's 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 a lost art to uh, there's Sam the man what's going on brother. How you been? Oh, good. This is Sam, the owner. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's for me. Thank sure, you it is very now. much. Hey, Sam. Um, Can I get you another beer? Uh, let me let me yeah, pace dude. myself. Yeah, thanks. Long we night. just came from another brewery, of course. So <laughs> yeah. you know, I gotta. <laughs> the um. So you were bridging that gap between edition one and edition two. Um, there's so much to pack in there because you're talking about like you know it's almost like an industrial revolution to the modern day technology age like the ex- exponentially just gets quicker and quicker more and more and more so you're talking about from when you finished putting the other book to bed in 2013 you're talking about start working in a book and start 
and get it published up until 2021. How did you, because you still have to stick to a format of pages. How do you not just put in what needs to be put in, but nix what you have to nix. You can't keep everything in the book. That's got to be like, like, you know, uh, the worst. Yeah, speaking of English, <laughs> English styles, uh, I had I had separate chapters on brown ale and mild ale, mm-hmm. and um, even in England, mild ale is basically extinct. I mean, it's just not a. He's gonna punch you right now. It's not. It's, uh, <laughs> no. it's just it does not warrant its own chapter. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just it's a, such a tiny, tiny percentage of world production. You really, yeah. really, really have to go far and wide to find either a brown or a mild, and so I clap, collapse those into one chapter. No. Um, Wit beer used to be a really big style especially for you out there widmer brothers pretty much that's what they, that's well that yeah that that i'm talking more the belgian style okay, okay. yeah so uh like the you know it was yeah blue moon got this they rode this rocket ship and whitbeer had its big big moment and it's really not very popular now even in, in uh belgium so I had given it its own chapter, and I absorbed it into the Belgian ale chapter, which includes things like Belgian brunes, which are not very common, and people, they're actually not that different than a Belgian pale ale. Like, that's one approach I had for the book is, if you understand the the technique and the, the philosophy behind a, a beer style, um, you can make some changes within that that. that 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 genre and it doesn't actually change the fundamental thing so like if you're brewing a bavarian uh lager it can be stronger uh and be a bach it can be lighter colored and be a hellas it can be darker and be a dunkel but brewers think about these beers the same way they just use different base malts they make them the same way they think about them the same way you know they're it fundamentally they're very similar beers except in the way that uh, the ingredients are put together and you know, with American IPA, as an, another example, I tried to break it down to your point. At the start of the podcast, you were, you were asking, like, how do you, how do you sort of future-proof this so it's, it's yeah. still relevant in two years? And I think, you know, for a long time, we've been able to see the trends in, in, in IPAs I, that, I, that I, I, I can't imagine leaving, which is, this tr- so leave aside West Coast versus Hazy. Yeah. What we've seen is a trend towards juiciness, right? Yeah. So, like the flavor and aroma of hops. More, yeah. It's just it's just been that that has everywhere you go, right. whether you're in New England, West Coast. Uh, when I was doing the first edition of the beer Bible, the book tour, uh, I was in Tampa, and it was a brew pub. I went. I had a, an event at a brew pub that had been open like six months, and they had one of the juiciest IPAs I'd ever encountered. They were home brewers. I was like. They get it in Tampa, you know. It's like everywhere is coming to this coherence with trying to pull the most flavor and aroma out of American hops that they can. So whether you're adding lactose, whether you're finishing at a gravity of uh, five Play-Doh or two Play-Doh, you know, uh, whether it's got uh, 80 IBUs or 40 IBUs, um, American ho- American IPAs are headed in this direction of should taste like tropical fruit, should smell like tropical fruit, maybe pine you know, and grapefruit, but basically they should be insanely aromatic and flavorful. And there's going to be, we have seen every variation, even to this point, you know, you got black IPAs, you have session IPAs, you have Belgian IPAs, you have fruit IPAs, you know, you can just, white IPAs, black and white IPAs, like red IPAs, you just go to the color spectrum, we've had all of them. So you can kind of imagine in your mind, um, trying to get your hands around this style and thinking, actually, it's true. I'm certain that the second this is published, we're going to see variations on this theme. And yet, uh, they sh- I, th- I have, we, we shall see if I'm correct about this, <laughs> but uh, uh, I have a sense that they're going to fit within this kind of general national tradition towards intensity of hop aroma and flavor. And we're seeing a lot on the breeding side. You know, so we have new hops coming online all the time. So now we have more coconutty hops, yeah. and I'm, you know, at, at, at a certain point they're yeah. going to invent a hop that's like, yeah. like they're coming out on. so fast. They're just numbers now. They don't even, you know, you just like you know, and eventually they give them a name. So yeah. HBC, blah 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 blah. Yeah. So you know, we may have like a, a vein of strawberry hops at some point that just like taste like strawberries, and yet, and so then we'll have a whole range of of you know, you'll have like 
let imagine my future strawberry hop and uh, Sabro, and it's like coconut strawberry. Coconut strawberry yeah. is right. Yeah. So you, you can see how that that kind yeah. of unrolls, but it's not fundamentally different. It's just a different flavor profile in yeah. terms of the way they're made and the way people want them to taste and the way they think about them. It's I, I think it's we've. In the, in the last decade, it's been 10 years since IPAs have been the, the dominant style in American craft brewing. I think we can see throughout that entire 10 years, this trend towards flavor, intensity, uh, aroma intensity. And, you know, the, the question of bitterness kind of depends on region, but uh, definitely dialed way back from its, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, 2005 time. And uh, uh, it's, it's either a, a more assertive balancing note or a less assertive balancing note. But basically, that one's off to the side. <laughs> I think I think we I think we kind of understand IPAs now, so we'll see if I'm right in ten years. Well, it's on the record. Don't worry about that. Um, speak to the difference or change or adoption of American hops in England, because you're talking about when you went back there, when you were there first to do the first edition, and you went back this time. You said not, you know, Europe as a whole, but England specifically. There's so many breweries that have adopted crazy American IPA, whether it be Cloudwater or Verdant or any of those larger breweries. What was that like? It's not that long. It's long, but it's not. You're talking about an eight-year stretch. You probably landed and you go walking in like Verdant. You're like, what? This is like I'm walking into Monkish or something at this yeah. point. It's had to be such a crazy shock to a certain extent. I, I had the weird serendipitous uh, good fortune of meeting uh, Paul Jones, one, uh, one of the two founders and now uh, sole owner of uh, Cloudwater yep. in San Francisco uh, five years ago, something like that. And they just started Cloudwater and he was traveling from Seattle to San Diego on a fact-finding mission. He was, he was tasting every IPA he could taste and he took that information back to Cloudwater. And you're right, uh, when I went to Manchester in 2019 to talk to Paul, it was like, okay, you have an English accent, and yet, you know, you might as well, you know, be uh, totally American, making American-style beers. In fact, he even has a barrel program uh, making wild ales that looks very American, which is another kind of minor American innovation. So there's there is that tradition, and you're you're seeing, um, you know, start. I think with the I would give the Colonel in London yes. credit as yeah. like the first one to really go all in on American style beer. And they did it so early that their, their beers were very bitter and very, yeah. very beautiful, beautiful, big brown bottles with a brown label. Right. Yeah. You know? Very simple uh, <laughs> labels, like very yeah. iconic. Yeah. Um, and now it's evolved into the, the, the more hazy realm, the juicier, the fruitier realm. But, uh, I, th- what I think, you know, to go back to my, my earlier point about the juicy cask thing is, where it becomes very interesting, and this is even happening at Cloudwater, is the sort of, so that's the return from the United States. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the first thing English brewers do is they do what anybody does when you're uh, brewing a style of beer from another place, is you try to brew it as perfectly true to style as you can before you start messing around, yeah. uh, adding your own stuff. And I think what will be really interesting is watching... English brewers, whether they're Cloudwater or traditional Cascale breweries, using American, and they, they, they always, they always have that, in England they have a category of New World hops, so they throw American and South South African and uh, New Zealand and... All lump them all in there. It's like they're New World hops. Yeah. For, and, you know, they're a lot closer to New Zealand than we are in the United States. So, and I think they're just as far, I think probably... Uh, the Nelson hop yards of New Zealand are as close to England as the Willamette hop yards in my home state of Oregon are. So yeah. from them, it's like, it's really far away and they're new world and they taste really expressive and that's what we care about. Uh, so they're using all these different hops. But what's fascinating is, you know, when you, when you look at um, what we think of as the quintessential uh, expression of American brewing right now, the hazy IPA, well, what really cracked that open? First of all, dry hopping where did that come from we learned it from from england yep. right that's like an english tradition it's not only english uh when i was in belgium uh, in 2019 jan debates at uh brasserie de la seine said oh yeah you know actually uh belgians have been doing dry hopping for centuries too 
which blew my mind. I'd never heard that. <laughs> really, Belgians? Because yeah. that's really not a hoppy place. But uh, so it's 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 not something Americans invented. Dry hopping is is an old tradition, but we learned it from Britain. And then the the really killer app in the, the hazy IPA is the English yeast strain, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Whether well, yeah, well, it's. I mean, a lot of people out there don't know. You're you're not really dealing with a wide swath of, of yeast here. It's usually either London or uh, or Conan or um, what is it? Um, there's probably a th- well, Quebec is probably one of the biggest ones because of turnover time. But right. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, in England, they're like, all these Americans are making these hazy IPAs out of our yeast. Yeah. Like we should just figure out like a <laughs> yeast strain. So at, at Cloudwater was super fascinating. There's an old brewery in uh, in Manchester where Cloudwater is located called Lee's. Yeah, Kennedy Lee's Harvest Ale is one of my favorite beers in the history of mankind. Right, and they make an amazing bitter that I super love. I, I've never tasted their bitter because Moonraker. What is it? Or bitter? Uh, I think it's just called just bitter. bitter. Yeah, okay. I think so. Yeah. Um, uh, it has a it has a very strong green apple note. Okay. And um, you know Americans will think that's a, a, an acid aldehyde quality, yeah. uh, an off an off flavor of in, in, incomplete fermentation. And when I was drinking it with a brewery, it's like, do you taste the aldehyde note? It's a very prominent note, but we like it, and it's always been a, a feature of our brewing. I'm butchering the. I'm sorry, in, in, anybody in, in the UK who's listening, I, I apologize for that. But it was. I'm, they're getting I, a chuckle. They're not offended. I, I was really impressed that he immediately, immediately it. called it out, and it it is awesome in the beer. Yeah. It's so great. Uh, anyway, Paul is friends with Lee's, and they work together, and he's. He's starting to experiment with Lee's yeast to make his I, hazy IPA. I had a cloud water. I had a cloud water beer with J.W. Lee's yeast. Yeah, I forget, but it was a small beer. It wasn't a big beer. Right. I right. forget what it is. Was it another? Ha- no, 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 no. That was a collaboration they did. Sorry, that's Keith off. Off. He never talks anyway. Excellent. No, it was actually just a cloud water non. Non. It was a cloud water non collab. A straight cloud water beer that someone sent me from uh, the UK that was just made with uh, JWD's yeast. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's fantastic. So it's like mm-hmm. all of a sudden the English are like, wait a second, this American, and I'm doing air quotes. Uh, <laughs> that works in podcasting. That's right. Uh, this American style of brewing actually borrows heavily from our tradition. What the hell? Why aren't we capitalizing on this? We are the ones that have these old yeast strains that produce these insane esters, and they don't have to produce. So to your point, when Americans make hazy IPAs, they so often use the same yeast strains that the Mm -hmm. ester profile is pretty similar. And and so the the flavor profile, no matter which hops you use, has a similarity. Well, you have this playground. If you're in England, you have this playground of all these different yeast strains, and many of them uh, won't work great with American hops. But a few of them will, and we don't have access to them in the way that the English do. Do you think that's more of a? Um, that's, uh, this is just me shooting from the hip on something like that. But it it sounds like that's more of just um, a, a money thing, not necessarily as far as cost, but as far as like American producers, they need to produce, they need to produce consistently, they need to produce what they need to produce, and they need to produce it now. So why would they? Why would they veer away from this yeast profile they're so used to? Where over in England. They're kind of still a little bit in their infancy when it comes to these kind of beers, so they can't experiment. And if it tastes like new but a little bit like old, maybe maybe people will get into it more. There's that, and there's also the, the, the thing that for so long, American ale breweries used the Chico strain, yeah. the Sierra Nevada strain, which is super neutral. So, you know, for many American brewers, the flavor of yeast is like, oh, my God, I put this beer in my beer and I get flavor. It's yeah. so interesting, whereas that is... 100% part of, of English brewing. So they already really understood that, uh, you know, they're, that when, you, when you look at the flavor profile of a good English cask ale, you've got the base malts, which mm-hmm. the Americans also are not very clear on how that contributes. <laughs> uh, you, you've got, you've got uh, the, the yeast profile. You may have water treatments, so yeah. and all that stuff. And, uh, of course, you have the way the hops fit into that. And all when you're drinking a cask ale, all of those components should come through. So they, you know, it's not like you're just irradiating it with hop flavor. Yeah. You're trying to get, you're actually, you want to taste the malt, right? Yes. So you can't irradiate it with malt, uh, with hops or else it's just, you Lost. nuke it. Yeah, yeah. And so Americans had so long been used to irradiating their beer with, with hops. And the Chico strain was great for that because it got out of the way. So that yeah. was always considered a great virtue until the moment they realized esters existed. Yeah. And so now, now brewers are trying to find esters, and but they're not that familiar. And I think in a, in a production schedule, if you know exactly how a yeast is going to perform and how, how hazy it's going to make the beer and uh, how it's going to interact with the hops, 
it makes a lot of sense. You know, you got your London 3, you know exactly how London 3 is going to behave. You've tasted it. It's familiar. People like it. Um, stick with London 3. three. English, who already have a, a sense of how uh, yeasts work and flavor the beer and work with hops and work with malts and, like, play together, they have a big advantage. They get how that's going to work. So if they're if they're working with the American tradition, they understand these other elements. They have an advantage by having a head start with the yeah, yeah, understanding yeah. these other elements, and they can, I think, more more adeptly figure out which which one of these yeast styles is going to work with uh, New World hops, as they call them. You you referenced a couple times about um, kind of the back and forth between the United States and England and that kind of ping pong effect about you know we take from them to take from us. Did you see anything in particular on their end of things? Is it the cask end of things that you might see coming over here? Is there another return volley from that end that you could see kind of coming over this way? Is it process? Is it is it that yeast or is it too soon to even tell? Yeah, maybe it's that yeast. I mean, I've seen a great insularity in the United States right now. Americans no longer look to Europe at all, um, which is is the natural progression of mature beer culture. Um, you know, if you're in Munich uh, and you were trained at Weinstefan, you're not looking at what the Belgians are doing. Yeah. You're, you're not thinking like, I wonder if my Dunkel would improve, be improved by using Belgian Pilsner malt um, <laughs> or, you know, some... Uh, you're you fired. Know, yeah, reformed. Exactly. <laughs> It just it just doesn't happen, and Americans are now kind of yeah. siloing like that. Americans know believe they know how to make beer, and um, they believe that all the information that they need is contained in the United States, and so they're not looking elsewhere so much. It's and, and I and I want to say I know there's nine thousand brewers in the United States, and if anyone hears this who's a brewer <laughs> and you're looking to Europe, I get that um, I get that there are some of you out there, but for the most part, there's a lot. Yeah, a lot you're of not talking in absolutes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. but um, and it's so it, it's it's all almost like a kind of exciting to a certain extent because you know, necessity and mother invention. So, you know, when you have, oh, oh, I know everything complex. Again, not that that's everybody and we have what we need to, then you start to get a little bit of a slowdown, I guess you would say. You could see it in the hazy IPA style. Yeah, it's, it's really becoming not everybody trying to innovate. It's everybody trying to me- make the best version of the thing they're already doing. So somebody's got to take up the mantle. Who's going to do it, Keith? Canadians? Scandinavians? Who's it going to be? That's why I don't call him the best color man in the business for nothing, guys. That's anyway, right. um, <laughs> it, you know he he's a thoughtful man. He he's, is. He's actually considering this, which this this format does not lend itself to uh, thoughtfulness. Uh, 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 it does not, and I'll let you know right now, Keith. Just go. I don't know. That's what would have happened. So I'm just kind of fast forwarding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think we're going to see stuff happen in other parts of the world. You know, whether uh, it's been a while, but I was in Mexico, uh, I think in 2018, um, and it's very exciting. Uh, in Mexico, they had a weird distribution thing, which completely suppressed the industry, and they changed the law, and a bunch of craft breweries opened. And so they have. So it was the United States, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. It felt like the United <laughs> States, 1985. It's like all these young people who are getting into beer are just super excited about innovation and they're trying everything they're throwing everything on the wall and it's amazing and so i think maybe you know i don't know if it's going to happen in mexico but you see that in in other countries too and it's possible that because they're not they're looking to the united states they're looking to europe they're they're looking everywhere and they're looking locally they're like what if we put this kind of cactus in the beer what will happen then and yeah i mean fun stuff you were talking about going uh, various i know i know someone who has a brewery in china there's a bunch in in, uh, japan i just had a brewery from south korea yeah. The other day, and it was a hazy, robust IPA. Sure, it's a hazy IPA, but it was a hazy IPA from South Korea. That was a very cool thing to see. And then when you see breweries starting to innovate and not just do quantity um, and and try to make interesting styles, you're you're going to have to put your own flora and fauna in there and just kind of make kind of cool stuff, which is really cool to see. Totally, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, uh, that's the other thing I learned writing this book is that it's a it's a global. Beer is global. It's local. It's definitely local, but it's also global. And uh, brewers talk to each other, and they share information. And, uh, you know, the one thing I would bet on, I'm really bad about predicting things, so keep that in mind. But the one thing I would predict is um, cool stuff will continue to happen in beer. And it it may not happen in the United States. We're so used to leading the, the world but it's possible. It's possible. I would just suggest gently that it's possible that it, uh, the next great innovation will not happen in the United States. Uh, full disclosure: about 20 minutes ago, he said I said something, and I'm going to predict the future, and we'll check back in a couple of years because it's going to be true. I think that you said that 
I, I'm paraphrasing. I, to a all, I always predict things, and I'm always <laughs> wrong. And um, I aware, I'm aware of that, and yet I boldly still predict things. A um, couple quick questions before we go, because you've got to start setting up for your Q&A. Um, at the beginning, I said, you know, a, a beer moves so fast that, you know, a couple of years, it'll be irrelevant. That's a very harsh word. I probably shouldn't have used that. But when you make a first edition to a second edition, do you write it with... How do you write that? Like, my first inclination would be, like, I'd write that as if somebody already read the first edition. So I'll give first edition but add on. Whereas if you write the second then you can be like, wait a minute, if no one's ever read the first edition, I can't leave anything out. Like, how do you find a balance? That would stress me out. That would be my probably biggest stressor in doing such a thing as of someone who writes nothing. My assumption is that no one ever reads anything I write, so I, I well, strive. No one, I, I understand that no one listens to anything I say. So. Yeah, exactly. So that's where I'm starting from. It's like I assume you haven't read this book, and we'll go from there. And if you have, you know, you maybe skip through these few chapters that uh, you, you're familiar with. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, th- there's whatever. Uh, 350 million Americans and. You know what is it? All of you need to buy this book. So if all 350 people well, that are watching, million the, people are listening to this right now. Only one. half of them are beer drinkers, okay. right? So let's keep that in mind. Well, there's the other half can gift it to the people who are beer drinkers, so they have doubles. I've seen my I've seen my sales stats and I've seen my traffic numbers on on, on uh, my blog, and I know that I don't have that kind of traffic. So I'm <laughs> I, I, I'm certain that the people who haven't read me are vastly outnumber the people who have. <laughs> Before we go, I actually have to just kind of get your kind of comments on this. Let's, let's talk about sake for a hot second. Yeah, that's one of my new okay. chapters. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Why yeah. Why include sake? Because I can see why, and I can also see why not. Well, I, I mean, uh, writing the beer Bible the first time made me realize it's ancient. And actually, in the period of time since I wrote the first edition to the second edition, there was a great archaeological dig in a place called Gobekli Tepe, and I may be mispronouncing that, but I've never heard anybody say it out loud, which is in modern-day Turkey, which pushed the date for known uh, human brewing back to 10,000 B.C., which is uh, 12,000 years ago. Uh, We're talking like 7,000 years before civilization. Insanely early. Insanely early. Humans have been making beer forever. And if you go to any place on the planet where, they, where, where uh, grain is grown, so you're talking about sor- sorghum uh, in China and Africa. You're talking about corn in the Americas. Obviously, wheat and barley in Europe. Um, they make beer. And there's this chauvinism that says beer should only be made out of barley or maybe wheat. Uh, and anything else is something other than beer. But... It, that's just, it's unsustainable and unsupportable if, if you kind of look at the history of beer in the world. Uh, and, you know, so in, in Asia, rice is the, the most prevalent green, uh, grain. And the way that sake brewers make sake is insane. It, to work with rice is a totally off-the-grid thing. If you, if you think you know beer, look at what sake brewers do. It's totally random. Um, you know, you, you, you just have, it's a different kind of grain, and so you have to do a bunch of different stuff. You have to use um, this, these mold spores to do the conversion of the grain of the rice, which is insane. It's very, very unusual. And they have rice, uh, they have ye- uh, yeast that will ferment their beer to like 20%. Which, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember when I was first reading about beer, they were like, well, uh, yeast Saccharomyces will crap out after, you know, 12, 13, 14 yeah. percent. It's like becomes toxic. Well, they've never been to Japan because the, the <laughs> Japanese will tell you that's actually not true. Saccharomyces can go all the way up to 20 percent. Um, and there are breweries in Japan, breweries, single single locations that have been there hundreds of years. Maybe we always thought it, it's it's a lie. Weinstefan says that they've been around since 1401 or whatever it is. That That's not true, actually. Um, it's a whole nother that's like five minutes. We don't. We don't need to spend yeah, on this. Yeah, it's it's Yingling Europe yeah. edition. Yeah, I yeah. Know. It's it's it, <laughs> it, 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 it's a it, it's just not true. But um, but there are places in Japan where they've been brewing for several hundred years, uh, in the same place. So it's you know, and, and there's a whole culture around sake brewing and sake drinking that's super cool. And it's honestly really chauvinistic that we would say that's something other than beer. And, yeah. And I and the second that I published the first edition. Um, I had a section on sake, but not a chapter. And I felt, I felt, I immediately felt like that was uh, 
a real problem. And it was that was before um, the United States started going through a reckoning, reckoning of white supremacy. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is another another example of the way in which uh, white people see whiteness wherever they go, and they yeah. don't tend to see other stuff. And I felt really guilty about that, so I I did my best to to do uh, sake right and proud and, and I, I don't think that's going to be the most popular chapter but it's an awesome chapter and you should read it and, and honestly like um i i'm a novice when it comes to sake like i like it i enjoy it i drink it when i can actually oddly enough 30 minutes north from here there's a sake brewery nice yeah and i go there every so often and i'm i'm not gonna sit here and say it's the best sake i ever had in my life but i have a sake brewery 30 minutes away from me in the middle of nowhere in new jersey that's really um, cool and it's such a great beverage and i understand why it can be in there i could see some people arguing not or whatever but just to not for you to put it in the first one but just then double down and go a little bit harder have you always been like a big sake drinker or was you you doing this chapter on sake kind of like you doing the first book or you know what i mean like learning a bit more getting a little bit more comfortable yeah i think the latter it was i i you know I had drunk sake. Uh, we have a one of the first American sake breweries in in Oregon, out in uh, uh, Forest Grove, which is maybe an hour from Portland. And um, you know, so I was aware of it through that. Uh, the great Fred Eckhart, who is uh, well, well, you know one of the early beer writers in in uh, America, Portlander. Yep. Uh, he got really into sake, so you know, it was it was floating in my consciousness, but. Um, you know, I didn't really know. Uh, I, 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 there was a lot of stuff about sake brewing I didn't know. So I went and, you know, did a really serious tour at Sake One and tried to learn everything I could. Um, I would love to have gone to Japan, but it wasn't in the budget. Um, yeah. I plan to go to one of those 600-year-old sake breweries. You need to write a sake point. book. Just, know, a co- yeah. just on its own well, merit. And on I, its own. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like since, <laughs> since, since uh, uh, this is kind of a, we got a New Jersey theme going on here, I want to say, Thanks to Jeff Cialetti, famous ah. New Jerseyan, uh, and I think the sake bard of, of the United States, who really helped guide me and like keep me straight. He was I always rely on experts, and he's written a sake book, which is very good, and he has toured those breweries uh, you know, in Japan, and so I was clarifying everything I could with him to make sure I got it right. So I, I, I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's been really cool to see the crossover. You see a lot of... Um you know, uh, breweries, some will use sake yeast or some kind of sake influences, whether it be grains and stuff like that, more specifically in like pilsners and, and lagers and stuff like that in the States as of late. And it's just cool to see that kind of influence. Again, it's kind of one of those things where you're talking about the English kind of being like, oh, should we really do these American hops in our beers? And just absorbing that, that, that information, that flavor profile and putting it in all together homogenized we're a melting pot of deliciousness that's yeah, what beer is baby it's true and and you know I, um i appreciate all cultures and one thing i appreciate about the united states is we are so receptive to these these different cultural influences and so sake is a good example um you know you've got a brewery here in, in new jersey or up the road from you in new jersey and uh you know americans are like well there's this cool craft product that I'm really into, and instead of thinking like that's somebody else's, we think, oh, I'll just do this thing. I'm going to make sake. Um, I, it's not the kind of thing that probably occurs to, uh, you know, if you're if you're living in Poland, you don't think like I'll start a sake brewery. But yeah, Americans do. That's that that's the it's the kind of plucky arrogance of uh, Americans, which is great. Drink sake and enjoy. Um, <laughs> but uh, awesome, man. I'm gonna have to let you go. You got to start setting up and All get right. ready for the Q and A's. Um, this is so. Been, this has been this has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, you, dude. You've asked really nice questions. Thank you. Thank you. I've done yeah. done some done some press, and I've, got, I've gotten asked some less interesting Dumb questions. Dumb stuff. Yeah. Is what it's called. Yeah, I'll good. say it. You don't have to. <laughs> um, where do they find you? I know you have the Beervana blog. You have the Beervana podcast. You have the uh, Beervana book. What's the best way? Just Beervana.com. Uh, BirvanaBlog.com. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the blog. Uh, Birvana.com is owned by somebody else. You I, need to get it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've tried to get it, and I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's so BirvanaBlog.com, and all the info is there, um, including uh, this. I'm just starting a book tour, so if you're that's in, what I was gonna say. Yeah. Where where are you headed? Uh, after today at Bond Place. Well, I don't know. When this is gonna. Drop, so probably. I'll try to get this up this week. So yeah. Wednesday, Thursday. So this is the. Uh, uh, the East Coast Swing, and I'm going to be in uh, Haley's Harp in Metuchen, John Hall's yeah. hometown, yeah. tomorrow, and uh, I will be in New York City at Torch and Crown on Ooh. whatever the day is after that, Wednesday. Good loggers. And uh, <laughs> Guinness on Thursday in Baltimore. Maryland. Yeah. yeah. And then um, so, and then after that, I do a Midwest Swing, 
uh, Minneapolis, Madison, Wisconsin, Chicago, West Coast Swing, Denver, San Diego, LA, San Francisco, and a Southern Swing, Atlanta, North Carolina, two stops. Uh, maybe forgetting something, but Austin. And then New England, uh, Boston, or Salem in Notch, Salem, Massachusetts. And, oh, uh, lager chugs again. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, Freeport, Maine, not Portland, Maine, pretty close to that. Finishing uh, up the tour up in New England to visit the visit the rents, the step rents. That's right. My my yeah. my wife. Uh, we're gonna we're doing that around Thanksgiving, so we'll be there anyway. Nice. So I like to tag that on. The last one, last stop uh, so far is. Uh, main beer co so one of my big faves that does not suck yeah it does not suck well thank you very much brother for joining thank us you. go check them out um if they wanted to buy the book what's the best place they could buy the book or you well, just don't care i don't care in one way but um if you're interested if you can't make a book tour stop and you're interested in having a signed copy every stop 